The animal envoys of the unseen power no longer serve as in primeval times to teach and to guide mankind. Bears, lions, elephants, and gazelles are in cages in our zoos. Man is no longer the newcomer in a world of unexplored plains and forests. And our immediate neighbors are not wild beasts, but other human beings contending for goods and space on a planet that is whirling without end around the fireball of a star. Neither in body nor in mind do we inhabit the world of those hunting races of the Paleolithic millennia to whose lives and life ways we nevertheless owe the very forms of our bodies and structures of our minds. Memories of their animal envoys still must sleep somehow within us, for they wake a little and stir when we venture into wilderness. They wake in terror to thunder. And again they wake with a sense of recognition when we enter any one of those great painted caves. Whatever the inward darkness may have been to which the shamans of those caves descended in their trances, the same must lie within ourselves, nightly visited in sleep. Listening to Joseph Campbell describe those ancient cave paintings, I found myself understanding for the first time how profoundly human it is to contemplate our mortality. Animals obviously experience death too. They watch each other die. But as far as we know, they don't imagine something beyond death. We do. Somewhere around 250,000 to 50,000 BC, our earliest ancestors left us the first tangible evidence of mythological thinking. They buried their dead as if they were going somewhere. Evidence of food, tools, and sacrificial animals has been found in those burial caves as if to wish the dead bon voyage. Neanderthal man also seems to have thought that some godly beings from another world like to drop in for a visit disguised as animals. Primitive humans depended on those visitors for food and clothing, but after killing them, Either from gratitude for their sacrifice or guilt over their murder, the hunters appear to have prepared them for the trip back home. High mountain caves have been found with bear skulls preserved ceremoniously and placed in symbolic settings. These early humans were obviously disposed to the possibility of another plane of existence, one they had to reckon with because their lives were bound to it in some mysterious, essential way the very idea gave them hope. Maybe this difficult, hard scrabble life is not all there is. They also had to do some serious thinking. How do we get ready for the next one? They began to devise stories to bridge the gulf between what they could see and what they could only imagine. Our first myths, perhaps. 
about this world and the world of the gods. Joseph Campbell was fascinated with these first storytellers. Their mythic stories were not simply entertaining tales to be told for amusement around the campfire. They were powerful guides to the life of the spirit. Myths helped our ancestors explain the movement of the sun across the sky, the changing of the seasons, even the mystery of creation. Through the millennia, they became what he called the wonderful song of the soul's high adventure. In this conversation, one of the many I taped with Joseph Campbell at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch during the last two years of his life, we talked about these first stories and the people who told them. Like them, we too have to come to terms with our immortality and anticipate our destiny with death. What do you think our souls owe to ancient myths? Well, the ancient myths were designed to put the mind, the mental system, into accord with this body system, with this inheritance A harmony? of the body, to harmonize. The mind can ramble off in strange ways and want things that the body does not want. And uh, the myths and rites were means to put the mind in accord with the body and the way of life in accord with the way that nature dictates. So in a way, these old stories live in us. They do indeed. And uh, the uh, stages of a human development are the same today as they were in the ancient times. And the problem of a child brought up in a world of uh, discipline, of obedience, and of his dependency on others has to be transcended when one comes to maturity so that you are living now not in dependency but with self-responsible authority. And the problem of the transition from childhood to maturity and then from maturity and full capacity to losing those powers and acquiescing in the natural course of, uh, you might say, the autumn time of life and the passage away. Myths are there to help us go with it, accept nature's way and not hold to something else. The stories are sort of, to me, like messages in a bottle from shores someone else has visited first. Yes, and you're visiting those shores now. And these myths tell me how others have made the passage? and how I can make the path. And, and also what the beauties are of the way. Uh, I feel this now moving into my own last years, you know. The, the myths help me to go with it. What kind of myth? Give me a, a one that has actually helped you. Well, the uh, tradition in India, for instance, of actually changing your whole way of dress uh, even changing your name as you pass from one stage to another. Uh, when I um, retired from teaching, I, I knew that I had to create a new life, a new way of life, and uh, I changed my manner of, uh, of uh, thinking about my life, just in terms of that uh, notion of moving out of the sphere of achievement into the sphere of enjoyment and appreciation and uh, re relaxing into the wonder of it all. And then there is that final passage through the dark gate. 
That, well, that's no problem at all. The problem in middle life, when the body has reached its climax of power and begins to lose it, is to identify yourself, not with the body which is falling away, but with the consciousness of which it is a vehicle. And when you can do that, and this is something I learned from my myths, what am I? Am I the, uh, the bulb that carries the light, or am I the light of which the bulb is a vehicle? And this body is a vehicle of consciousness. And if you can identify with the consciousness, you can watch this thing go, like an old car. There goes the fender. There goes this. But that's expectable, you know? And then, gradually, the whole thing drops off, and consciousness rejoins consciousness. I mean, that's, it's no longer in this particular environment. And the myths, the stories have, have brought this consciousness well, I live with these myths, and they tell me to do this all the time. And uh, this is the problem which can be then metaphorically understood as identifying with the Christ in you. And uh, the Christ in you doesn't die. The Christ in you survives death and resurrects. Or it can be with Shiva. Shiva hung, I am Shiva. And this is the great meditation of the, of the, the yogis in the Himalayas. And uh, one doesn't have even to have a metaphorical image like that if one uh, has a mind that's willing to just relax and uh, identify itself with that which moves it. You say that the image of death is the beginning of mythology. What do you mean? How is that? Well, all I can uh, say to that is that the earliest evidence we have of anything like mythological thinking uh, is associated with grave burials. And they suggest what? That men, women saw life and then they didn't see it and they wondered about it? It must have been. I mean, one has only to, you know, imagine what one's own experience would be. The person was alive and warm before you and talking to you. He's now lying there, getting cold, beginning to rot. Something was there that isn't there, and where is it? Now, animals have this experience, certainly, of their companions dying and so forth, but uh, there's no evidence that they've had any further thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. Also, before the time of Neanderthal man, it's in his period that the first burials appear, that, of which we have evidence, uh, people were dying and they're just thrown away. But um, hear this a concern have you ever visited any of these burial sites i've been to le moustier that was the one of the earliest burial caves that were found and you find there what they buried with the dead uh, yes these uh, grave burials with grave gear that is to say weapons and sacrifices roundabout certainly suggest the idea of the continued life beyond the uh, visible one. First one that was discovered, a person is put down, resting as though asleep, a young boy, with a beautiful hand axe beside him. Now, at the same time, we have evidence of shrines devoted to animals that have been killed. The shrines specifically are in the Alps, in very high caves, and they are of cave bear skulls. 
And there's one very interesting one with the long bones of the cave bear in the cave bear's jaw. What does that say to you? Burials. My friend has died, and he survives. The animals that I've killed must also survive. I must make some kind of atonement relationship to them. The indication is of the notion of a, a plane of being that's behind the visible plane and which is somehow supportive of the visible one to which we have to relate. I would say that's the basic theme of all mythology. That there, there is, is a world? That there is a visible an invisible plane supporting the visible one. Now, whether it is thought of as a world, world. or simply as an energy, uh, that differs from time and time and place to place. What we don't know supports what we do know. That's right. The basic hunting myth, I would say, is of a kind of covenant between the animal world and the human world, where the animal gives its life willingly. They are regarded generally as willing victims with the understanding that their life, which transcends their physical entity, will be returned to the soil or to the mother through some ritual of restoration. And uh, the principal rituals, for instance, and the principal divinities are associated with the main hunting animal, the animal who is the master animal and uh, sends the flocks to be killed, you know? The Indians of the American Plains was the buffalo. You go to the northwest coast, it's the salmon. The great festivals have to do with the run of salmon coming in. When you go to South Africa, the elands, the big magnificent antelope, is the principal animal for the bushman, for example. And the principal animal, the, is the, the one that animal, furnishes the food. The food. So there, there grew up between human beings and animals, uh, a bonding, as you say, which required one to be consumed by the other. That's the way life is. Do you think this? troubled early, early, early man? That Absolutely. He felt That's guilt. why you have the rights, because it did trouble them. What kind of rights? Rituals of appeasement to the animals, of thanks to the animal. A very interesting aspect here is the identity of the hunter with the animal. You mean after the animal has after been After the animal shot. has been killed. The hunter then has to fulfill certain rites in a kind of participation mystique, a mystic participation with the animals whose death he has brought about and whose meat is to become his life. So the killing is not simply slaughter. At any rate, it's a ritual act. It's a recognition of your dependency and of the voluntary giving of this food to you by the animal who has given it. It's a beautiful thing. It turns life into a mythological experience. The hunt becomes what? It becomes a ritual. Mm -hmm. The hunt is a ritual. Expressing a hope of resurrection, that the animal was food and you needed the animal to return. And, and, and some kind of respect for the animal that was killed. That's the thing that gets me all the time in this uh, 
uh, hunting ceremonial system. Respect for the, the animal. Respect for the animal, and more than respect. I mean, that animal becomes a messenger of, of divine power, you see. And you wind up as the hunter killing the messenger. Killing the god. What does this do? Does it, does it cause guilt? Does it cause... No, no. Guilt is what is wiped out by the myth. Uh, it, is a, it, is a, it is not a personal act. You are performing the work of nature. For example, in Japan, in uh, Hokkaido, northern Japan, among the, the Ainu people, whose principal mountain deity is the bear. When it is killed, there is a ceremony of feeding the bear a feast of its own flesh. As though he were present, and he is present, he served his own meat for dinner. And there's a conversation between the mountain god, the bear, and the people. They say, if you will give us the privilege of uh, entertaining you again, we'll give you the privilege of another bear sacrifice. If the cave bear were not appeased, uh, the animals wouldn't appear, and these primitive hunters would starve to death. So they began to perceive some kind of power on which they were dependent greater than their own. And that's the power of the animal master. Now, when we sit down to meal, uh, we thank God, you know, our, our idea of God for having given us this. Um, these people thank the animal. And is this the first evidence we have of an act of worship? Yes. Of, of power superior to man? Yeah. And, and the animal was superior because the animal provided food? Well, now, in, in contrast to our relationship to animals, where we see animals as a lower form of life, and in the Bible we're told, you know, we're the masters and so forth, uh, early hunting people don't have that relationship to the animal. The animal is in many ways superior. Um, he has powers that the human being doesn't have. And then certain animals take on a persona, don't they? The buffalo, the raven, oh, the eagle. very strongly. Well, I was up in the northwest uh, coast back in 1932, a wonderful trip, and the Indians along the way were still carving totem poles. The villagers had new totem poles still. And uh, there we saw the ravens, and we saw the eagles, and we saw the animals that played roles in the myths. And they had the character, the quality of these animals. There's a very intimate knowledge and, and friendly, neighborly relationship to these creatures. And then they killed some of them, you see. The animal had something to do with the shaping of the myths of those people, just as the buffalo for the Indians of the plains played an enormous role. They're the ones that bring the tobacco gift, the mystical pipe and all this kind of thing, it comes from a buffalo. And when the animal becomes the giver of uh, a ritual and so forth, they do ask the animal for advice and the animal becomes the model for how to live. You remember the story of the buffalo's wife? That's a basic legend of the, of the Blackfoot tribe and um, is the origin legend of their buffalo dance rituals. Which had by which they uh, uh, invoke the cooperation of the animals in this play of life. When you realize the size of some of these tribal groups, to feed them required a good deal of, uh, of meat. 
And uh, one way of acquiring meat for the winter would be to drive a buffalo herd to stampede it over a rock cliff. Well, this story is of a Blackfoot tribe long, long ago. And they couldn't get the uh, uh, buffalo to go over the cliff. The buffalo would approach the cliff and then turn aside. So it looked as though they weren't going to have any meat for that uh, winter. Well, the daughter of one of the houses, getting up early in the morning to draw the water for the family and so forth, looks up. And there, right above the cliff, were the buffalo. And she said, oh, if you only come over, I'd marry one of you. And to her surprise, they all began coming over. That was surprise number one. Surprise number two was when one of the old buffaloes, the shaman of the herd, uh, comes and says, all right, girly, off we go. Oh, no, she says. Oh, yes, he said. You made your promise. We've kept our side of the bargain. Look at all my relatives here, dead. Off we go. Well, the family gets up in the morning, and they look around, and where's Minnehaha, you know? With, and the father, and you know how Indians are, he looked around, he said, she's run off with a buffalo. He could see by the footsteps. So he says, uh, oh, I'm going to get her back. So he puts on his walking mo moccasins, bow and arrow, and so forth, and goes out over the plains. He's gone quite a distance when uh, he he feels uh, he better sit down and rest. And he comes to a place that's called a buffalo wallow, where the buffalo like to come and roll around, and get the lice off, and roll around in the mud. So he sits down there and is thinking what he should do now, when along comes a magpie, not a beautiful flashing bird. And it's one of those clever birds that uh, has shamanic qualities. Magical qualities. Magical. And the man says to him, Oh, beautiful bird, he said, my daughter ran away with a buffalo. Um, uh, have you seen, will you hunt around, see if you can find her out on the plane somewhere? And the magpie says, well, there's a lovely girl with the buffaloes right now over there, just a, a bit away. Well, he said, the man, will you go tell her that her, her daddy's here, her father's here at the buffalo wallow? Magpie flies over, and uh, the girl is there among the buffalo. They're all asleep. I don't know what she's doing, knitting or something of this kind. And the magpie comes over close to her and he says, your father's over at the wallow waiting for you. Oh, she says, this is terrible. This is dangerous. I mean, he, these buffalo, they'll kill us. You tell him to wait. I'll be over. I'll try to work this out. So her buffalo husband's behind her, and he wakes up and uh, <clears throat> takes off a horn. He says, go to the wallow and get me a drink. So she... Uh, takes the horn and goes over, and there's her father. He grabs her by the arm. He says, come. She says, no, 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 this is real dangerous. The whole herd, they'll be right after us. I have to work this thing out. Now, let me just go back. So she gets the water and goes back, and he, fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the blood of an Indian, you know, that sort of thing. And she says, no, nothing of the kind. He says, yes, indeed. So he gives a buffalo bellow, and they all get up, and they all do a slow buffalo dance with their tails raised, and they go over, and they trample that poor man to death so that he disappears entirely. He's just all broken up to pieces and all gone. So the girl's crying, and uh, her buffalo husband says, so you're crying? This is my daddy. He said, yeah, but what about us? There are our children, our wives, our parents and 
you crying about your daddy. Well, apparently he was a kind of sympathetic, compassionate buffalo. And he said, uh, well, I'll tell you, if you can bring your daddy back to life again, I'll let you go. So she turns to the magpie and says, uh, see, peck around a little bit and see if you can find a bit of daddy. And the magpie does so. And uh, he comes up finally with a vertebra, just one little bone. And the little girl says, that, that's plenty. Now we put this down on the ground and she puts her blanket over it and she sings a revivifying song, a magical song with great power. And presently, <clears throat> yes, there's a man under the blanket. She looks daddy all right, but he's not breathing yet. A few more stanzas of whatever the song was and he stands up and the buffalo are amazed. And they say, well, why don't you do this for us? We'll teach you now our buffalo dance, and when you will have killed our families, you do this dance and sing this song, and we'll all be back to life again. That's the basic idea, that through the ritual, that dimension is struck which transcends temporality, and out of which life comes, and back into which it goes. And it goes back to this whole idea of death, burial, and resurrection, not only for human beings, but, but for the animals, too. So the story of the buffalo's wife was told to confirm the reverence. That's right. What happened when the white man came and slaughtered this animal of reverence? That was a sacramental violation. I mean, they, in the 80s, when the buffalo hunt uh, was undertaken, you know, Kit Carson, Buffalo ago. Bill, yeah. and so forth, uh, when I was a boy, uh, whenever we went for sleigh rides, we had a buffalo robe. Buffalo, buffalo, buffalo robes all over the place. This was the, the, the sacred animal of the Indian. These hunters go out with repeating rifles and then shoot down the whole herd and leave it there. But take the skin to sell, and the body's left to rot. This is a sacrilege, and it, it really is a sacrilege. It turned the, it turned the buffalo from a thou to an it. The Indians addressed the buffalo as, as thou, thou, an object of reverence. The Indians addressed life as a thou. I mean, trees and stones and everything else. You can address anything as a thou, and you can feel the change in your psychology as you do it. The ego that sees a thou is not the same ego that sees an it. Your whole psychology changes when you address things as an it. Whether it's a woman. And when you go to war with the people, the problem of the newspapers is to turn those people into its so that they're not thou's. That was an incredible moment in, in the evolution of American society when the buffalo was slaughtered. That was the final exclamation point behind the destruction of the Indian civilization because you were destroying... Can you imagine what this experience must have been for a people within 10 years to lose their environment, to lose their food supply, to lose the object, uh, the central object of their ritual life? So it is in your belief that, that it was in this period of hunting man and woman, the time of hunting man, that, that human beings began to sense a stirring of the mythic imagination, the wonder of things yeah. that they didn't know. Uh, there is this 
burst of magnificent art and all the evidence you need of uh, a mythic imagination in full career. You visited some of the great painted caves oh, in yes. Europe. Tell me what you remember when first you looked upon those underground Well, caves. you didn't want to leave. Here you come into an enormous uh, chamber, uh, like a great cathedral with these animals painted. And they're painted with a life like the life of a ink on silk in the Japanese painting. And um, when you realize the darkness is inconceivable. We're there with electric lights, but in a couple of instances, the concierge, the man who was showing us through, turned off the lights, and you were never in darker darkness in your life. It was like a, I don't know, just a complete knockout of, you don't know where you are, whether you're looking north, south, east, or west. All orientation is gone, and you're in a darkness that never saw the sun. Then they turn the lights on again, and you see these gloriously painted animals. A bull that will be 20 feet long, and painted so that the haunches uh, will be represented by a swelling in the rock. You know, they take account of the whole thing. It's, it's incredible. Do you ever look at these primitive art objects and think not of the art, but of the man or woman standing there painting or creating? I find that's where I speculate. Oh, this is what hits you when you go into those caves, I can tell you that. What was in their mind when they were doing that? And that's not an easy thing to do. And how did they get up there? And how did they see anything? And what kind of light did they have? Uh, little flashing torches, throwing flickering things, and then to get something of that grace and perfection. And with respect to the problem of beauty, is this beauty intended, or is it something that is the natural expression of a beautiful spirit? You know what I mean? Mm. When you hear a bird sing, the beauty of the bird's song, is this intentional? In what sense is it intentional? But it's the expression of the bird, the beauty of the bird's spirit, you might almost say. And uh, I think that way very often about this art. To what degree was the intention of the artist what we would call aesthetic, or in what, to what degree expressive, you know, and to what degree something that they simply had uh, learned to do that way? It's, it's a difficult point. When a spider makes a beautiful web, the beauty comes out of the spider's nature, you know, it's uh, instinctive beauty. And how much of the beauty of our own lives is of our, the beauty of being alive? And how much of his is a, a conscious intentional? That's a big question. You call them temple caves. Yeah. Why? Why temple? A temple with images and um, stained glass windows, uh, cathedrals, are a landscape of the soul. You move into a world of spiritual images. That's what this is. When Jean and I, my wife and I, drove down from Paris to this part of France, we stopped off at Chartres Cathedral. There is a cathedral. When you walk into the cathedral, it's the mother womb of your spiritual life. Mother Church, all the forms around are significant of spiritual values. And the imagery is in anthropomorphic form. God and Jesus and uh, the saints and all in human, human form. Human form. 
Then we went down to Lascaux. The images were in animal form. The form is secondary. The message is what's important here. The message of the cave? The message of the cave is of a relationship of time to eternal powers that um, is somehow to be uh, experienced in that place. Now, I tell you, when you're down in those caves, it's a, it's a strange transformation of consciousness you have. You feel this is the, the womb. This is the place from which life comes. And that world up there in the sun with all those feet, that's a secondary world. Mm. This is primary. I mean, this just overcomes you. You had that feeling when I, you were I had it every time. Now, what were these caves used for? Yeah. The speculations that uh, are most uh, common of scholars interested in this is that they had to do with the initiation of boys into the hunt. Uh, you go in there, it's dangerous. Uh, it's very dangerous. It's completely dark. It's cold and dank. You're banging your head on projections all the time. And it was a place of fear. And the boys were to overcome all that and uh, go into the womb of the earth. And the shaman or whoever it was that would be uh, helping uh, you through would not be making it easy. And then there was a release once you got into that vast torchlit chamber down there. What was the tribe, what was the tradition trying to say to the boy? That is the womb land from which all the animals come. Nice. And the, the rituals down there have to do with the generation of a situation that will be uh, propitious for the hunt. And the boys were to learn not only to hunt, but how to respect the animals and what rituals to perform and how in their own lives, no longer to be little boys, but to be men. Because those hunts were very, very dangerous hunts, believe me. And uh, these are the original men's right sanctuaries where the boys became no longer their mother's sons, but their father's sons. Don't you wonder what effect this had on a, on a boy? Well, you can, you can go through it today, actually, in, in uh, cultures that are still having the initiations of young boys. They give them an ordeal, a terrifying ordeal, that the youngster has to survive, makes a man of him, you know. What would happen to me as a child if I went through one of these rites, as far as well, we can... Well, we know what they do in Australia. And when a boy gets to be, you know, a little bit uh, ungovernable, uh, uh, one fine day, the men come in, and they're naked except for stripes of white down that have been stuck on their bodies in stripes with their men's blood. They use their own blood for glue, gluing this on. And they're swinging the bull roarers, which are the voice of the spirits, and they come as spirits. The boy will try to take refuge with his mother. She'll pretend to try to protect him. The men just take him away. A mother's no good from then on, you see. He's no longer a little boy. He's in the men's group, and then they put him really through an ordeal. These are the rites, you know, of circumcision, sub-incision, and... The whole so purpose forth. is to... Turn him into a member of the tribe. And a hunter. And a hunter. Because that was the way of life. Yeah, but most important is to live according to the needs and... Uh, uh, values of that tribe. Mm -hmm. He is initiated in 
uh, a short period of time into the whole culture context of his people. So myth relates directly to ceremony and tribal ritual. And the absence of myth can mean the end of ritual. A ritual of is the enactment of a myth. By participating in a ritual, you are participating in a myth. And what does it mean, you think, to young boys today that we absent these myths? Well, the confirmation ritual is the counterpart today of, of these rites. As a little Catholic boy, uh, you uh, choose your confirmed name, the name you're going to be confirmed by, uh, and uh, you go up. But instead of having them uh, scarify you and knock your teeth out and all, the, the bishop gives you a mild slap on the cheek. It's been reduced to that. Nothing's happened to you. The, uh, the Jewish counterpart is the bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether it works, actually, to affect a psychological transformation, I suppose will depend on the individual case. Well, there's no problem in these old days. The boy came out with a different body, and uh, he'd gone through something. What about uh, what about the female? I mean, it, 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 most of the figures in the in the temple caves are are, are male. Was this yeah. was this a kind of secret society for males? It only? wasn't a secret society. It wasn't the boys had to go through it. Now, uh, with the we don't know exactly what happens with the female in, in this period because we have very little evidence to uh, tell us. In primary cultures today, the girl becomes a woman with her first menstruation. Uh, it happens to her. I mean, nature does it to her. And so she has undergone the transformation. And what is her initiation? Typically, it is to sit in a little hut for a certain number of days and realize what she is. How does she do that? She sits there. She's now a woman. And what is a woman? A woman is a vehicle of life. And life has overtaken her. She is a vehicle now of life. Woman's what it's all about. The, 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 the giving of birth and the giving of nourishment. She's identical with the earth goddess and her powers. And she's got to realize that about herself. The boy does not have a happening of that kind. He has to be turned into a man and voluntarily become a servant of something greater than himself. The woman becomes the vehicle of nature. The man becomes the vehicle of the society, and the social order, and the social purpose. So what happens when a society no longer embraces powerful mythology? What we've got on our hands. As I say, if you want to find what it means not to have a, to have a society without any rituals, read the New York Times. And you'd find? Well, the news of the day. Wars young people, young people who uh, don't know how to behave in a civilized society, half the, I imagine, 50% of the crime is by young people in their 20s and early 30s that just behave like barbarians. Society has provided them no rituals None. by which they become members. There's been a reduction, a reduction, a reduction of ritual. Rit Even in the Roman Catholic Church, my God. They've translated the mass out of the ritual language into a language that has a lot of domestic associations. So that, uh, I mean, every time now, 
that I, I, I read the Latin of uh, and, uh, uh, the Mass or something like that, I, I get that pitch again that it's supposed to give, a language that throws you out of the field of your domesticity, you know? The altar is turned so that the priest's back is to you, and with him you address yourself outward like that. Now they've turned the altar around. It looks like Junior Child, uh, Julia Child giving a demonstration, and, and uh, it's all homey and cozy. And they play guitar. They play guitar. They listen, they've forgotten what, what the function of a ritual is, is to pitch you out, not to wrap you back in where you have been all the time. So ritual that once conveyed an inner reality is now merely form. And that's true in, 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 in the rituals of society and the, and the personal rituals of marriage and religion. Well, with respect to ritual, it must be kept alive. And uh, so much of our, our ritual is dead. It's extremely interesting to read of the primitive elementary cultures, uh, how the, the folk tales, the myths, they are transforming all the time in terms of the circumstances of those people. People move from an area where, let's say, uh, the, uh, the vegetation is the main uh, support out into the plains. Most of our plains Indians uh, in the period of the horse riding Indians, you know, had originally been of the Mississippian culture along the Mississippi in, in uh, settled uh, dwelling uh, towns mm -hmm. and agriculturally based uh, uh, villages. And then they uh, received the horse from the Spaniards and it makes it possible then to venture out in the plains and handle the great hunt of the the buffalo herds you see and the mythology transforms from vegetation to buffalo and you can see the structure of the earlier uh, vegetation mythologies under the mythologies of the the Dakota Indians and the Pawnee Indians and uh, the Kiowa and so forth you're saying that the environment shapes the story they respond to it do you see but we have a, a tradition that comes from the first millennium B.C., somewhere else, and we're handling that. It has not turned over and assimilated the uh, qualities of our culture and the new things that are possible and the new vision of the universe. It must be kept alive. The only people that can keep it alive are artists of artists. one kind or another. That the artist, is his function is the mythologization of the environment and the world. Artist being the poet, the musician, the, the author. Exactly. The writer. Yes. And I think we've had a couple of greats in the recent times. I think of James Joyce as, as uh, such a, a revealer of the mysteries of growing up and becoming a human being. And uh, for me, he and uh, Thomas Mann were my, my principal gurus, you might say as I was trying to shape my own life. I think in the visual arts, there were two men whose work seemed to me to handle mythological themes in a marvelous way, and one was Paul Clay and the other Picasso. These two men really knew what they were doing all the way, I think, and had a great versatility in their revelations. I mean, our artists are the myth-makers of our day. The myth-makers in earlier days were the counterparts of our artists. 
They drew the paintings on the walls, yes. they performed the rituals. There's an old romantic idea uh, in German, das Volk dichtet. That's say that the uh, poetry of uh, the traditional cultures and the ideas come out of the folk. They do not. They come out of an elite experience, the experience of people particularly gifted, whose ears are open to the song of the universe, and that they speak to the folk, and there is an answer from the folk which is then received. There's an interaction, but the first impulse comes from above, not from below, in the shaping of folk traditions. So who would have been in these early elementary cultures, as you call them, the equivalent of the poets today? The shamans. The shaman is the person who has in his late childhood, early youth, could be male or female, had a, an overwhelming psychological experience that uh, turns them totally inward. The uh, whole unconscious has opened up and they've fallen into it. And it's been described many, many times and it occurs all the way uh, from Siberia right through the Americas down to Tierra del Fuego. It's a kind of schizophrenic crack-up, the shaman experience. What kind of uh, experience? Dying and resurrecting, you know, uh, being on the brink of death and coming back. Actually experience the death experience. People who have very deep dreams. Dream is a great source of the spirit. And uh, then people who in the woods have had mystical encounters. Well, let me, let me, let me try to be specific about it. The shaman becomes some person in, in a society who is drawn by experience from the normal world into the world of the gifted. That's right. Most of us think of shaman as a, a magician, mm -hmm. but they play a much more important role than simply being a Oh, no, they a play trickster. the role that uh, the priesthood plays in our ah, society. These are the that, first the, priests? Well, there's a major difference, as I see it, between a shaman and a priest. A priest is a functionary of a social sort. The society uh, worships certain deities in a certain way, and the priest becomes ordained as a functionary to carry on that ritual. And the deity uh, that, to whom he is devoted is a deity that was there before he came along. The shaman's uh, powers are symbolized in familiars, deities of his own personal experience. And his authority comes out of a psychological experience, not a social ordination. Do you understand what I mean? And the one who had this psychological experience, this traumatic experience, this ecstasy, would become the interpreter for others of things not seen? Uh, he would become the interpreters of a heritage of mythological uh, life, you might say, yes. And ecstasy was a part of it very often in the shamanic It, it is ecstasy. The yes, trance no dance, for example, in the, in, in the Bushman society. Now, there's, there's a fantastic uh, example of something. Um, the, the little Bushman groups, uh, the whole life is one of great, great tension. Uh, the, the male and female sexes are, uh, what we say, in, in a disciplined way, separate. The, the men have a certain field of uh, concerns, their weapons and the poisons and the hunt and all that, and the women have a certain field of concern, the bringing up the children, the nourishing of the children, and so forth and so on. Only in the dance do the two come together. And they come together this way. The women sit in a circle or a, a group, and uh, they then become the center around which the men dance. And they control the dance and what goes on with the men through their own singing and beating of the thighs. 
What's the significance of that, that the woman is controlling the dance? Well, the woman is life, and the man is the servant of life. And, uh, and during the course of this circling, circling, it's a very tense style of movement the men have, uh, suddenly that one of them will pass out. He's entranced now, and this is a description of an experience. When people sing, I dance, I enter the earth. I go in at a place like a place where people drink water. I travel a long way, very far. When I emerge, I'm already climbing. I'm climbing threads. I climb one and leave it. Then I climb another one, then I leave it, and I climb another. When you arrive at God's place, you make yourself small. You come in small to God's place. You do what you have to do there. Then you return to where everyone is. You come and come and come, and finally you enter your body again. All the people who have stayed behind are waiting for you. They fear you. You enter, enter the earth, and you return to enter the skin of your body. And you say, that is the sound of your return to your body. Then you begin to sing. The Utum masters are there around. They take hold of your head and blow about the sides of your face. This is how you manage to be alive again. Friends, if they don't do that to you, you die. You just die and are dead. Friends, this is what it does, this ntum that I do, this ntum here that I dance. This is an actual experience of transit from the earth to through the realm of mythological images to, to God or to the seat of, the, uh, of power. It becomes something of the other mind of us. It is exactly the other mind. And, and the way God is imaged, God is transcendent, of, um, finally, of, of <laughs> anything like a name of God. As the Hindus say, beyond names and forms, beyond dhamma-rupam, beyond names and forms, no tongue has soiled it. No word has reached it. But Joe, can, can Westerners grasp this kind of mystical, trans-theological experience? It does transcend theology. It leaves theology behind. I mean, if you're locked to the image of God in a culture where science determines your perceptions of reality, how can you experience this ultimate ground that the shamans talk about? The best example I know in our literature is that beautiful book by John Neihart called Black Elk Speaks. Black Elk was? Black Elk was a young Sioux or Dakota, as they also called, a boy around nine years old uh, before the American cavalry had encountered the Sioux. They were the great people of the plains. And uh, <clears throat> this boy became sick. His uh, psychologically sick, his family, uh, I'm telling the typical shaman story. Uh, the child begins to tremble and is uh, uh, immobilized, and the family is terribly concerned about it. And uh, they send for a shaman who had had the experience in his own youth to come as a psychoanalyst, you might say, and pull the youngster out of him. But instead of relieving him of the uh, deities, he is adapting him to the deities and the deities to himself, you might say. That's, it's a, a different problem from that of psychoanalysis. 
where you, uh, you remember, I think it was Nietzsche who said, be careful lest in casting out your devil you cast out the best thing that's in you. Uh, here, the deities who have been encountered, the powers, let's call them, uh, are, are retained. The connection is retained. It's not broken. And, uh, and these men then become the, the spiritual advisors and gift givers of their people. Well, what uh, happened with this young boy, he was about nine years old, was he had a vision, and the vision is described, and it's a vision prophetic of the terrible future that his tribe was to have. But it also spoke of the possible positive aspects of it. It was a vision of what he called the hoop of his nation, uh, realizing that it was one of many hoops, which is something that we haven't all learned well enough yet. And the cooperation of all the hoops of all the nations in grand processions and so forth. But more than that, it was an experience of himself as um, going through the realms of spiritual uh, imagery that were of his culture and assimilating their import. And it comes to one great statement, which for me is a key statement to the understanding of myth and symbols. He says, I saw myself on the central mountain of the world, the highest place. And I had a vision because I was seeing in a sacred manner of the world. And the sacred central mountain was Harney Peak in South Dakota. And then he says, but the central mountain is everywhere. That is a real mythological realization. Why? It distinguishes between the local cult image, Harney Peak, and its connotation, the center of the world. The center of, that, of the world is the hub of the universe, axis mundi, you know, the central point, the pole star around which all revolves. The central point of the world is the point where stillness and movement are together. Movement is time, stillness is eternity, realizing the relationship of the temporal moment to the eternal, not moment, but uh, forever, is uh, the sense of life. Realizing how the, this moment in your life is actually a moment of eternity and the experience of the eternal aspect of what you're doing in the temporal experience is the mythological experience. And he had it. So, so is the central mountain of the world Jerusalem, Rome, Benares, Lhasa, Mexico City, you know? Mexico City, Jerusalem is symbolic of a spiritual principle as the center of the world. So this little Indian was saying there is a shining point where all lines intersect? That's exactly what he said. He was saying God has no circumference? God is an intelligible sphere. That's say a sphere known to the mind, not to the senses, whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. And the center, Bill, is right where you're sitting. And the other one is right where I'm sitting. And each of us is a manifestation of that mystery.